Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Say, truly my Lord has guided me to a straight path, uh, an upright religion, the way of Ibrahim the Hanif, who is not of those who associate partners to God. Hidayah, guidance, the greatest gift. No true happiness exists in the soul of a man if he does not know what is the meaning of life. And however great the misfortunes that the outward world may pour upon his head, if he has within his heart the sense that everything has a meaning, that it comes from Ar-Rahman and it goes to Ar-Rahman, then he will be, insha'Allah, a person of happiness in this world as well as the next. Hidayah, guidance. Those who know and those who do not know are not, cannot be, will never be equal. Alhamdulillah, we find that the census returns indicate that the number of people who self-identify as Muslims in our country is steadily, even rapidly, increasing. And we will immediately say, but this religion is not a religion of quantity, it's a religion of quality. Did not he say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that in the end of time, the Muslims will be weak? And the Sahaba say, will we be few on that day, ya Rasulullah? And he says, bal antum kathir, walakinnakum ghutha'un, ka ghutha'i sayl. He says, no, you will be very many, but you will be like the froth carried along by the flash flood. If you've seen an uncontrollable flash flood in the desert, you'll know that it carries all kinds of stuff with it. That's how we will be, according to the Chosen One, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But nonetheless, this increase in numbers makes us think, no longer are we an insignificant religious minority, but we are becoming very significant indeed. And as the country continues to age, it will need more and more people who still go to the trouble of having children. People who are still people of fitrah. People who recognize that we are part of the natural world and that if we are sterilizing ourselves with our materialistic lifestyles or our funny new ideas about gender and the family, then we are a fail on the most fundamental level. He says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Tanakahu takatheru fa inni mubahin bi kathratikumul umama yawmal qiyamah. Marry and multiply. I will be proud of your numbers on the Day of Judgment. We hear this hadith very often when there is a nikah. And the country needs more. And this will be an issue for many. But we are needed. They complain so much about immigration and asylum seekers. But in fact, the country could not exist unless the ranks of the youth are replenished to produce more taxpayers to pay for the increasing numbers of old people. The country's economy depends on this. They should all go to the White Cliffs of Dover and stand there, Rishi and Preeti and the rest, with their hands outstretched saying, come little boats, come, we need you. We need more of you. We will show our Abrahamic hospitality, but the economy will depend on you. Those who have crawled and fought and 
found their way somehow across sea and land to get here. You must be people of considerable enterprise and intelligence. We need you. You will repopulate this land which is in the grip of this baby drought. You will come like the healing rain of heaven. This is what they should be saying. Was this not how America became great? We need another Statue of Liberty, perhaps at Dover. An even bigger one. Perhaps Suella Braverman would act as the model for it. Holding up the torch. Hmm? Come, she says. Come, ye poor and needy. Come, you huddled masses. Come. This is what they should be doing. But in any case, the numbers are increasing. And this is a blessing. More and more people saying the Shahada in a land that doesn't know what to say. A blessing. But as well as this, there is the migration within. In this mosque last year, the faithful volunteers and the servants and the custodians of this mosque registered 103 shahadas in this mosque. Alhamdulillah. We have people who come to the mosque, old people who have never been to a mosque before and their eyes are full of tears when they see not just the building but the devotion of the people who they see worshipping here. Where else will they find such a thing? People continue to come. And we need to think about this. Ours is a religion of hospitality for the newcomer, for the one who makes hijrah from Baltil to Haq, from the one who wants to find his way from the confusing multiplicity of the world to the one. The only explanation that will give peace to his heart is the explanation that says behind all of the bewildering multiplicity of things there is the one, al-wahid the healing hand of Tawheed, for which every human heart craves. 103. What a great thing it is for the custodians of the mosque to have been facilitating this process, to have been welcoming them in the spirit of the Abrahamic embrace. May Allah reward them, and may Allah help these new brothers and sisters to continue to find a welcome. The Holy Prophet says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the hadith, in Bukhari, Narrated by Sahel bin Sa'ad, قال, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم, والله لئن يهدي الله بك رجلا واحدا خير لك من حمر النعم. By Allah, the Holy Prophet occasionally swears by Allah in the hadiths to underline the importance of the principle he's about to expound, and he says, for Allah to guide through you, <coughs> one man is better for you than the old Arab image, red camels. In other words, the greatest wealth available to the Arabs. Nowadays, we might say uh, a million pounds in Bitcoin or something, whatever it is now, but important, valuable, this matters. Each one of us should have the niyyah to talk to people in their bewilderment to explain that there is an explanation for things and to bring them here. And when we find newcomers in the mosque, to welcome them, to talk to them, not to cover them with instructions. Sister, your hijab should be like this. Brother, your thobe should be like this. Please read this website. Here is the book of my sheikh, bewildering them with demands and expressions of our insecurity. No, just welcome them. Hear their story. Offer them food. In the month of Ramadan, new Muslims often complain. They come to the mosque and they eat their dates and they drink their water for iftar and then they see all of the Muslims going off happily for family meals, leaving them alone. They don't have families for iftar. They don't have a supporting network. 
Let's look out for them this Ramadan and see if we can invite them to our homes. It's our obligation. Now, so many people, <laughs> it's the religion of Da'wah, the religion of Tawheed, despite every obstacle that the shaitan and the ways of the world put in its way. What a glorious story. We need to be telling our children about the glorious story of those who have sacrificed everything in order to come to La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. How does it begin in this country? The glorious underestimated saga of the British Muslim community goes back at least as far as the year 1187. Sir Robert of St Albans. We should know these people. They are our ancestors, our Salaf, our heroes. In the time of the Crusades, a time when Islamophobia was universal, he goes on crusade. He joins the Knights Templars, the fiercest of all of the crusading orders, the monks who take a vow of celibacy and who always pray in their armor, fighting against the Saracens. He joins them. And by a series of extraordinary adventures by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing his care even for these unlikely people, he ends up saying, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. And Sir Robert becomes a great mujahid, fi sabilillah. He's a good soldier. He joins the army of Salahuddin Ayyubi. He commands one of the Muslim flanks at one of history's most critical battles, the Battle of Hittin, 1187, which is the battle that decides the fate of the Crusader invasion and ensures that Jerusalem is recaptured by its, uh, its rightful custodians. Is there a more important battle than the Battle of Hittin? Won in many ways by Brother Robert. Masha'Allah. After the battle, he's rewarded. He marries the niece of Salah ad-Din. We need to remember these people. They are our forefathers. What an extraordinary story. Our history is a history of heroes and martyrs. Thomas Keith. We should know these stories. From Edinburgh, a soldier converts to Islam in Egypt, swears his allegiance to the Khalifa in Istanbul continues as a soldier, a good soldier, a good administrator, a pious Muslim, a mosque-going Muslim, uh, and the Sultan makes him the wali, the governor of the city of Al-Madina Al-Munawwara. Do we tell our children that a Scotsman was guided by the light of Islam to become the governor of the holy city? We should. These are extraordinary stories. We should know who they are. And it continues to the present. When we welcome these newcomers into Islam, we hear so many stories. Recently, we saw all of these documentaries about Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian. Another interesting story, a man of principle. He joins the KGB that then becomes the FSB, the post-communist equivalent of the Russian secret police. Does very well, but is a man of principle who cares about justice. And he sees things that are being done secretly that he cannot in good conscience live with. And he starts to talk. He's a secret agent, but he starts to talk. And he publishes books. He publishes a book in which he says, actually, the bombing of the apartment buildings in Moscow that the Russians blamed on the Muslim Chechens, it was an inside job. We did it. Man of courage. He has to leave his job leave everything, endangering himself, becomes a refugee in England. One of the good things about this country is that when the system works, they can still help people like that. 
Uh, but then he's poisoned. You remember the story. In the year 2006, he gets ill. Radiation poisoning, polonium-210. Hugely expensive. They say it must have cost $5 million just for the small amount of radioactive material that was slipped in his tea. And he gets sicker and sicker. And the journalists are interested, and the politicians are anxious. But he says to his father, as he knows he's going to die, I've become Muslim. Politicians don't know what to do with this added complexity. The journalists certainly don't know how to report this strange thing. But he's a person of principle who cares. The day before he dies, he's in University College Hospital on Euston Road in intensive care, feeling really bad. He says, I want to talk to an imam. There's no Muslims around him. His family are perplexed. His handlers, it's all very strange, this religious thing. I want to talk to an imam. The imam comes, goes past the journalists, goes past the doctors, goes past the minders, the police, etc. He's allowed through. And next to this man who knows that he's passing through those final gates, he recites Surat Yasin and some du'as. And the next day, he dies. And there's nobody around him. This is the situation of many converts. When they die, there's nobody to help them. So he's buried in Highgate Cemetery, a non-Muslim cemetery. There's no Islamic anything on his tombstone. But we can go there. If we're in London, we can go to Highgate North Cemetery and recite a fatiha. He's an honorable man. So many other stories that we hear here. And we need to be aware of the sacrifices that these people are making. One Muslim in Cambridge I used to know from a very aristocratic family. He had houses in several countries from a wealthy background used to come to Juma with us. His family didn't like it. His wife didn't like it. This is not what these people who go riding with princesses are supposed to do. He dies unexpectedly. The family grab him. He has a church funeral. He's buried with his ancestors in the vault, and the Muslims don't go near. But still, we know he was our brother, a person of Islam. Another girl who is here, and think about these things in Ramadan, uh, faithful Muslim, but her family, she's young, she lives at home, don't accept any of this. During Ramadan, she has to get up in the middle of the night secretly without waking anybody, go to the kitchen and make her suhoor. For us, suhoor is a nice thing with family, but not for these people, these heroes who are sacrificing even family. For la ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. A Hindu brother who has become Muslim. Hmm? Very dangerous, Brahman, rich family. He can get away with the meals, the vegetarian and so forth, but they don't want to acknowledge his Islam. Who's he going to marry? It's another issue for our new brothers and sisters. Are we welcoming them into our homes and helping them to marry? Not always. He says he has to marry either a convert who's also a Brahman who's also concealing her Islam. Not so easy to find or his family will be content with a really posh white girl who has lots of money and brings lots of status. They'll forgive him for that, and if she's a secret convert, he can do it. But he can't marry anybody else. So we need to remember the huge sacrifices that these people have made since Sir Robert abandoned the Knights Templars and his family and everything. Two weeks ago, a priest came to me. He says he wants to become Muslim. But he's going to lose his salary, he's going to lose his vicarage, he's going to lose his job. But he's still determined to do it. Just this morning, an Ethiopian guy emailed me saying he's just taken his shahada. It's happening. 
Despite the mess of the Ummah, people still come to this simple and beautiful and healing and universal truth. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. So we look to the seerah. And we find in the seerah it's quite unlike today. Today there's a few converts and a lot of born Muslims. Back then, <laughs> there were very few born Muslims, maybe the children of the Sahaba, and everybody else was a convert. And their stories, subhanAllah, you can read the seerah just to learn from their amazing stories. <clears throat> Sohaib and Sinan, Arumi, one of my favorites. Byzantine, Greek. Enslaved by the Greeks, escapes, goes to Mecca, which is outside the reach of the Byzantines. And he hears that there is this monotheist who is speaking out fearlessly against injustice. And remember, this is the time when the Muslims are praying secretly in the house of Al-Arqam ibn Abi Al-Arqam, and they're being persecuted and killed, and families are separated, and some have gone to Ethiopia. At the most dangerous time, he says, I want this. So he goes to the house of Al-Arqam, and there is Ammar bin Yasir, one of the great Sahaba, who converts with him. And this, of course, turns his life upside down. He's become quite pro prosperous in Mecca. But now they won't let him leave. And when the Hijrah happens, they guard his house. Quraysh will not allow him to join the Muslims. He has money. They don't want that money to go to the cause of the new believers in Yathrib. But he escapes. He says, I'm going to answer a call of nature. Under his clothes, he's concealed his bow and arrow. He's determined to get to Medina. Somehow, nowadays, it's a high-speed train. Back then, a difficult, dangerous venture. <coughs> Lions in the desert, predators, human and animal. He doesn't come back, and they start to look for him. And they find him in one of the hills outside Mecca with his bow and arrow. And he says, I'm going to pick you off one by one unless you let me go. They still come. And then he says, if I tell you where my wealth is hidden, will you let me go? Smiles on the face of Quraysh. And he's allowed to go because that's what they care about. And he comes, after more adventures that I have time to tell, to the city of Medina, and he goes, of course, to the Chosen One, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who is the light of his heart. The Holy Prophet is so happy to see him. And he says, tijaratuka ya Abu Yahya. Your business has just prospered, Abu Yahya. And it said that it was on this occasion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse which is in Surah Al-Baqarah amongst those are some who pay for their own selves in order to please Allah. A great one. And he becomes elevated. We know that he recites and relates many hadiths. We know that when Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab anhu, is martyred in his mosque, who leads the prayers while they're choosing his successor? It's Sahib. Not some big shot Arab from a major tribe, but the refugee, the asylum seeker, the new Muslim is in there. That's how the Sahaba were. They look for the best. Salman al-Farisi, another amazing story. Extraordinary story of a spiritual seeker. If you go to Iraq, there's a town near Baghdad called Salman Pak. They have the Persian name for it. That's where he's buried. That's where he lived his life in Al-Mada'in. He's famous for the purity of his soul. Uh, 
famous for being the governor of Al-Mada'in, which is the former Persian capital of Ctesiphon, one of the most magnificent cities of the world. Taqi Kisra, the Arch of Khosrows, is still there. It's still the second biggest brick arch anywhere in the world. The Persians had magnificent palaces. We wouldn't live in the palace. He was given 5,000 dirhams a year salary. It went to the poor. He wouldn't accept a penny. When he wanted to earn something, he would go to a date farm and work in the date farm, huh? and that would be his income. He refused to accept any salary. He was known for his justice, and everybody loved him of all of the religions. Salman al-Khair, they call him. Salman the Good. Salman the Persian. Look at how Islam takes these noble people and makes them into miracle administrators. What is a provincial governor like today in the Iraq or Middle East? Well, he's probably not saying no to his salary. Let's not say too much about it. But those people, miracle men and women, subhanAllah. His story. His story. Kuntu rajulan farisiyan min ahli isfahan. Wa kana abi dihqana qaryatihi. He said, narrated the story to Abdullah bin Abbas later in his life. Amazing story. He said, I was a Persian man in the city of Isfahan and my father was a wealthy landowner. And then it seems there was some kind of abuse. My father loved me more than anything, but he kept me locked up in the house. He was afraid that this young man would come to some harm. And enjoy this. And he used to make great efforts in the Zoroastrian religion until I became the custodian of the holy flame, the one who looks after the flame and lights it and maintains it, like a Zoroastrian priest. And then one day, his father, who is busy, sends him to the daya, to the big estate, to check on something. And on his way, he says, I went past one of the Christian churches. And I heard the sound of their prayers and I went in. And I liked this and I spent the rest of the day with them. And I said, Where does this religion come from? And they said, From Syria, Palestine, Fisham. That night I go back and my father is in a frenzy. Where have you been? And he's angry. And his father chains him to the wall. So I was chained as the beloved son of my father couldn't leave the house. But I sent a message to the local people in that church saying, if you hear of anybody who's going to Syria, uh, then let me know. A caravan comes. He escapes from the chain and goes, And I went with them to the land of Syria. Never goes back to Persia. So he goes to Syria and he says, who is the best of the people here? And they say, the bishop in that church. So he goes to study with him and says, can I be your disciple? Now what Salman Ipak is looking for is spiritual light, truth. Uh, he's on a vision quest. He wants to inhale the reality of al-Wahid, not just to learn rules, but he wants uh, spirituality. 
So he stays with this bishop, and then he says, Kana rajul as as he describes it later to Ibn Abbas. He was a bad man. He would take charity from people and keep it in his house until he filled seven clay vessels full of gold and silver coins. And then the priest died, and the people came, and he said, this was a bad man, and he showed them the vessels, <laughs> uh, and the people were very angry. Uh, and they took him out of his grave, and they crucified the corpse and they threw stones at it. They were so disgusted. And then the next man comes along. He's a little bit better. So he's on a quest. He wants to know where is the light, where is the truth. And each time he's making a bit of progress, but he's still dissatisfied. And then this priest on his deathbed uh, says, there's somebody else in this age of decadence. People are no longer what they used to be. Uh, go to this person in Mosul. And he does the same thing with the spiritual teacher in Mosul. Still not quite satisfied, but he's making progress. And then he goes to the town of Nisribin. Same thing. And then he's sent to the town of Amoria, which is now somewhere in the middle of Turkey. And here he studies with this person. He fasts with him. He prays with him. He's, it's a basic form of asceticism. And then that man says, when he's approaching his death, says, uh, I know, I have seen, uh, this is a man who's seen something. He says, this is almost the time of a prophet who will emerge from the land of the Arabs. Salman asks for more. And he says, he gives him these signs that in some way the spiritual person has noted. This is the guide of the time. This is the man who will finally unlock your heart. Who is he? He describes him. In the land of the Arabs, in the land of date palms, between two lava plains, the Hararatain of Medina. Uh, it's clear that this is where it is. And he eats... Mm -hmm. from gift, but he doesn't eat the sadaqah. And between his shoulders, there is the mark, the khatam, the symbol of prophecy. And the man dies. Salman Pak, poor, this is the day of bad times, of bad communications. He's up there in the north, in the Greek lands. Uh, but he finds a caravan who are traveling from Bani Kelb, and he says, if I give you everything I have, and he has by this time some animals, cows, goats, <coughs> will you take me with you to the Arab lands? They agree. But then, he says, Zalamuni, when we reached Arabia, Wadi al-Qura in the north of Arabia, a little oasis, Zalamuni wabauni lirajulin yahudiyin abda. They sold me as a slave to a Jewish man great misfortune. How is he going to get out of this? Salman sees the, the date palms and thinks, maybe this is it, but it's not. He works there in the farm. And then his owner sells him to a relative who takes him to Yathrib. Yathrib has the fragrance, but the Holy Prophet is not there yet. He's still in Mecca. And then when Salman Farisi is working at the top of a date tree, you have to climb, it's hard work, and pick the dates. Uh, and my owner was sitting at the bottom of the tree, so he'd throw down the dates to him. There was a tremendous noise, tremendous sound. And I felt something in my heart. 
like a kind of shaking. And then I heard the sound, the Jews were shouting, uh, and they said, may Allah rectify Bani Qayla, that was their word for the uh, Arabs, the non-Jews of Medina. Today there's come to them in the town of Quba, a man who claims that he's a prophet. And he's so excited, he disobeys orders. He comes down from his tree and he says, Mada taqul, mada taqul to these people. What are you saying? What are you saying? And my owner beat me and beat me. There's nothing I could do. But then that evening after work, Salman al-Farisi gets some of the food that he has stored up, small amount, and he goes to Qubat. And he goes to the chosen one, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he offers this, saying, this is sadaqah. Note the wisdom of the man. He's already been disappointed by spiritual guides who turn out not to be right. This is what we should always do if we're going to a peer or a murshid or a sheikh. Be certain. Be careful. You don't want ugly hands to be touching your soul. This is important. So it's like he's testing him. And he sees that the Holy Prophet وسلم, gives the food to his sahaba he doesn't put his own hand toward it. And he says, It's one of the conditions that's been fulfilled. So the Holy Prophet goes to Medina after that, and then I come to him again, again with, with a gift. And I said, I've seen that you don't eat sadaqah, but this is a gift. Holy Prophet ate it and gave it to his companions as well. So Salman says, Two now. He's getting more excited. And then, he wants to know about this khatam. The one thing that remains is how is he going to see this sign, this miraculous thing on the back of the Holy Prophet So he has an idea. Rasulullah The Holy Prophet was attending a funeral in Baqi'ah. And Salman says that he took a robe for him. And he gives this robe to the Holy Prophet. And he helps it on with it. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam anzala rida'ahu took his shirt off I saw the sign of prophecy between his blessed shoulder blades and then I embraced him and I kissed him and I was weeping he'd found his guide he'd found the spiritual master of the time Rasulullah said, rest, tell me your story. That was the beginning of his story in Islam, the opening of his heart, the fullness of monotheism. But he's still a slave. And his owner doesn't want to sell him or liberate him. And he fixes a really high price. So Salman misses the early battles. He misses Badr, he misses Uhud. He can't get away. And his owner has said, I want, in order to release you, this Mokertaba, 300 palm saplings 
uh, and 40 ounces of gold. It's a fortune. Salman is disconsolate. Goes to the Holy Prophet وسلم, who calls his Sahaba, and together each of them comes up with one little palm sapling until they have 200, and then they go and they dig. And the Holy Prophet وسلم, himself plants each one of the 200, and Salman afterwards says, Wallahi, not one of them died. Not one of those saplings died. That's half of the Muqatiba. And then the Holy Prophet وسلم, gives Salman a small piece of gold, small like a Pigeon's egg or something. What is this compared to the great weight of my debt? He says, take it. So I went and I started measuring it out. And I measured it out. And I measured it out. This is a prophetic miracle. Until 40 ounces were there. And Salman was free. With his beloved. With his spiritual guide. Subhanallah. And of course, he is the one who digs the trench that saves Medina, the Khandaq. It was his idea, a Persian idea, not an Arab idea. Quraysh can't get past it. He saves the city. Quite a repayment. And he becomes Salman al-Khair, Salman the Good, the narrator of Hadith, the one who doesn't care about the dunya because of the teachings that he's received from his spiritual guide and from the Chosen One, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A wonder. The one who rules Ktesiphon pays no attention to its treasures. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this once again an age of the Muhtadi, of those who are guided to Islam, and to learn their stories and to be inspired and to see how we can help them, how we can be the Ansar to these people of spiritual hijrah, insha'Allah, so that the Ummah will continue to grow and will continue to grow in spirit and sincerity, insha'Allah. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين إنه هو الغفور الرحيم